There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The Irish Times Business Podcast in association with Irish Life. Supporting companies and their employees for 75 years. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Good day and welcome to the Irish Times Business Podcast. I'm Arthur Beasley. Today we're discussing Dennis O'Brien's action in the High Court against Dublin PR firm Red Flag. We'll also take a look at new data on Ireland's housing market and the retail trade. Well, anyone observing Dennis O'Brien might have thought that this autumn would be dominated by the flotation of his Caribbean mobile phone group Digicel. In the end, however, the flotation was pulled. Now Dennis O'Brien finds himself in court in an action to tackle an alleged conspiracy against him. What's going on, you might think? To discuss this, I'm joined by Irish Times reporters Peter Murta and Mark Paul. Peter, who are the dramatis personae in this particular affair? Well, there's Mr O'Brien, as as you've mentioned, and he'll be familiar, I'm sure, to uh, many listeners and Irish Times readers and the wider public. He His Irish company is Communicore, and he also then has this Caribbean-centric uh, uh, mobile phone service provider called Digicel, which was part of what the IPO was all about. Um, and he has taken issue uh, with a, a fairly small public relations company that's based in Dublin, although it does have a presence in London, Paris and Brussels. And, and it's, it's called Red It's Flag. called Red Flag Consulting Limited. And uh, a lot of the people or some of the key people there have uh, strong historic links to independent news and media, which is sort of one aspect of the subtext of, of what's going on, one might say. And yeah. they, 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 they include... Uh, Gavin O'Reilly, who is the son of uh, Tony O'Reilly, and Gavin O'Reilly was, uh, in fact, he succeeded his father as chief executive of independent news and media. And he's a non-executive chairman of Red Flag. Uh, The person who really runs Flag, the chief executive, is Carl Brophy, who's also, um, both as a journalist and as a newspaper executive, strong historic links with independent newspapers. And there are three other people uh, in uh, Mr. O'Brien's uh, crosshairs, as it were, in uh, Red Flag, there, uh, Seamus Conboy, who is the director of client campaigns, uh, and a Breed Murphy, uh, who is something of a social media expert, I understand, and a Kevin Heaney, who is an account executive. So as the company, those five, uh, and Dennis is uh, is up against them. 
Very good. Now you've written a very, uh, very comprehensive uh, account of uh, of all that has been taking place in the, in, the, in the last couple of weeks in the for the Irish Times, and you situate the story in a in a lawyer's office in faraway Singapore, in which Dennis O'Brien signs uh, an affidavit in which he makes quite striking claims yes. against Red Flag and the principles behind it. And it's important to remember here that Dennis O'Brien is now the a largest shareholder in independent news and media, which was the company previously controlled by Tony O'Reilly exactly. and his family, and for which uh, Carl Brophy, the principal in Red Flag, once worked. Yes, that's that's right. I mean, uh, O'Brien and O'Reilly actually pretty much occupy the same position within independent newspapers in terms of their shareholding. They aren't complete controllers of it, but they have what is in effect a controlling interest. Um, the piece I wrote, uh, comprehensive, it's as much as we can say at the this point, but you're 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 right. It all started uh, in terms of the action on uh, October the thirteenth in the offices in Singapore of Kuik Chow Kiong, uh, a legal firm that was not uh, familiar to me up to this point. Nor I, uh, I must confess. <laughs> but uh, clearly, Mr. O'Brien was in Singapore uh, uh, at the uh, uh, the anointed hour, and so he signed this uh, twenty-one page uh, affidavit. Uh, swore it in the the, the notary public uh, so described in Singapore and uh, later the day uh, that same day October the 13th it all sort of burst into the high court with an ex parte application that means uh, an application in which the other side as it were is not present for the time being Uh, O'Brien sought an injunction against Red Flag and and there are several aspects of that injunction we could go into if if you wanted so Dennis O'Brien was in Singapore, but his yes. barristers were in the High Court ready to go. Ready to, to, to go indeed. And, uh, and what did he say in the affidavit, Peter? Well, what he says is, uh, I mean, in summation, it is very detailed and very long. Uh, he says that he is the victim of what he describes as an unlawful conspiracy. Uh, to, to blacken his name, to do him down, to defame him. Um, and there are several aspects to this and there are several subtexts to this, one of which he mentions is the IPO. Um, he says he thinks this has been going on for some considerable time and he thinks there's a pattern to it and that pattern is evident in the media and it's evident by what people say in public and what uh, politicians say in Leinster House and uh, according to him and I'm, 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 I'm paraphrasing here if one was to look at all of these things the, 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 the reports in newspapers what TDs are saying you can see a pattern and in his mind behind that is a conspiracy by the persons we have named, red flag, etc., uh, etc., et to do him down. Now, he does make the point that behind red flag, in his view, there is somebody else, and he wants to know who that is. Well, Peter, what has he produced by way of evidence to substantiate these very serious claims he has made against what remains uh, a pretty small public relations company? Yes, well, uh, part of his uh, affidavit uh, uh, roots his concerns in a a report by a a, a company that uh, forensically analyzes uh, uh, computers, IT data. It's called Espion. It's based in Sandyford Industrial Estate. And according to Mr. O'Brien, his suspicions that there was a conspiracy uh, against him uh, prompted him to hire private investigators. Now, he doesn't say when. Uh, Does but, he say who the investigators are? Uh, no, he doesn't. Uh, all, all that's clear from the affidavit is that the, uh, the meat and drink of his concerns, if you like, go back to last May and June, 
when there was uh, all of this business about um, uh, IBRC, David Murphy's report in RT, injunction against that, and then it comes out in the doll under privilege. That's when everything was really white hot. Uh, and, and that's dealt with at length in, in the affidavit. So he uh, says, without saying when, without saying who, uh, his concerns about this, this great conspiracy against him prompted him to hire private investigators. Uh, and then he says in the next breath in the affidavit, uh, although he doesn't connect these two events, uh, Hoopla, uh, through the post in an envelope, or in an envelope at any rate, he receives a memory stick, a USB stick. Uh, he says he doesn't know who sent this or where it came from. Uh, but um, in the Espion report, these uh, data analysts, they say that this uh, memory stick contains uh, 339 files, uh, 223 of which are PDFs. There are a couple of Word documents, a couple of PowerPoint presentations and two videos. And then there are what are described as 106 other uh, files. I'm not sure exactly what they are, but 339 in total. And when, you, when they're examined, what they turn out to be, I would say 90 plus percent, are newspaper cuttings from the Irish Times, the Sunday Business Post, um, the Wall Street Journal, uh, Sunday Times, Washington Post. And they're all reports, of course, in which Dennis O'Brien is mentioned. But all of these are in the public domain. They're all in the public domain. And the the key uh, uh, documents in the the memory stick, which he describes as a dossier, and this is is the sort of the evil dossier that is evidence of of people out to get him. The key documents, as he describes it in his affidavit, are a number of, I think they're word documents. Uh, There is, who is Dennis O'Brien? which one imagines is some sort of profile of the man, however caustically written uh, a profile of him and what's known of him. One is called the IPO experience, which is rooted, I believe, in the Moriarty Tribunal chapter about uh, the IPO experience that he had at that time. Um, and then the, uh, the other is called uh, uh, the uh, Moriarty Tribunal explainer, which goes into great detail about what the Moriarty Tribunal found about Dennis O'Brien, and this may be the key for his his enormous sensitivity about his reputation, because as we know, it found uh, uh, unfavourably uh, as regards his relationship with Michael Lowry and uh, monies that uh, passed between them and Mr O'Brien's obtaining of the uh, second mobile phone licence in Ireland. Upon which his fortune rests. Upon which some... His original uh, fortune. Yes, indeed. I mean, people who, who, who follow uh, uh, money uh, more detailed than I do would say, yes, that Dennis O'Brien's uh, wealth, which is now uh, measured in the billions, it is said, really grows from the obtaining of that uh, second mobile phone licence in Ireland. But again, I mean, the data set out in the three files, I haven't read them, I I Mm. don't have them in in, in front of me. Again, most of that is data which would be in the public domain. I mean, the the Moriarty Tribunal reported at great length, I recall, writing about the report. I mean, it it ran to several volumes, hundreds and hundreds of pages. We all know what was in the Moriarty Tribunal report. Uh, Absolutely. I think what he's uh, uh, taking issue with is there's clearly an amount of I mean, as you as you can imagine, if a public relations company or indeed a journalist, perhaps for an editor, was asked to, you know, will you prepare me 500 words on Joe Bloggs? I need to know a bit more about him because I'm going to meet him at dinner tomorrow night. There would be a certain amount of 
pure quoting from the public record, if you like, and there would be a certain amount of of uh, infusing uh, uh, of of assessment and what have you. And in the affidavit, he he goes through some of these documents, and uh, you know he he he. I I have the affidavit here. Just opening one page, uh, one of the documents apparently says that he is quote only in favour of my own speech being free unquote. Now. I don't think that's in a publicly available document. It is clearly the view of whoever put together that particular assessment. Um, so it's it's while f- as far as we can see, the vast bulk of the information is in the public domain. There are clearly phrases which he enumerates and details uh, at great length in his affidavit that really irritate him. I suppose the question is in in defamation terms, are those comments uh, fair comments based on facts? And do they constitute a conspiracy? Do they constitute a conspiracy? Indeed, and at the moment, this case is before uh, Mr. Justice Colin McKeucky. There is no jury. My understanding of defamation is that it is something that must be decided upon by a jury. Uh, whatever about a conspiracy, I'm not a lawyer. I'm sure that can be decided upon in the absence uh, of, a, of a, a jury. But I suppose, standing back from all he says, one of the things that does strike me about it is that he's obviously a man who clearly values his reputation and wishes to avail of, of his, his legal options from time to time. <laughs> um, a lot of what it would seem he would rather fade it into the background, what the Moriarty Tribunal said about him, etc., etc., his relationship with IBRC. If this thing goes to a full trial, a full hearing, which at the moment is scheduled for some time in December, all of those things are going to be argued ad nauseum and in spectacular detail in the courts. And so if Dennis O'Brien wishes people to forget about what the Moriarty Tribunal found about him, there are going to be many, many reminders in the months ahead. Well, Peter, uh, it, it strikes me that we, what we haven't got into is what, what Red Flag have said in court uh, in, the, the, in, in their defence. That's right. Well, the, it, it, at the moment, what's been argued about is the, 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 the injunction that was granted to Mr O'Brien is, in effect, a freezing injunction. He sought uh, what was called an Anton Pillar order, which is basically a civil law uh, search and seize warrant. It's an extraordinarily powerful document that grew, uh, uh, legal device that grew up in the UK in the mid-70s and it was related to copyright theft and all of that. But um, uh, O'Brien wanted to go in uh, with the force of contempt of the High Court behind him if Red Flag didn't obey, didn't let him in and basically seize whatever he wanted in their office. Now the President of the High Court said, no way. What he did grant was an order that essentially freezes, that that says to Red Flag, you must not uh, tinker with your computers or your emails or anything to do with this this dossier here. You must just make sure it's all preserved. So that's what's going on at the moment. Both sides have experts in, uh, Espion for Mr O'Brien and a, and a, a, a firm, a similar uh, forensic data analysts for Red Flag from London, plus their lawyers, and they're going through various computers and disks and servers and clouds and phones and and what have you in red flag and basically copying them. That copy will then be the master copy for any legal action which which, uh, uh, grows out of all this and it will be sort of put to one side. Right, we now have what you want to argue about. 
are you going to argue about it? And it's at that point that they will start going into the data and people saying, well, this is a reasonable comment or this is a fact or what do you want about it? And into the substance of the claim by Dennis O'Brien that he's the victim of a conspiracy. Yes, and I mean, I'm sure, I mean, I, I can't speak for Red Flag, but I'm sure that they would argue it's apparent from, from the uh, what's the, the dossier, the memory stick, that these are cuttings, these are briefing documents. They would say this is what PR companies do. There may be one or two injudicious comments, but this is basically what we do. I've got to bring Mark Paul in here. Mark, you have been covering the uh, plan to float Digicel on the New York Stock Exchange, which was um, uh, supposed to be the culmination, if you like, of this company's advance. It was set up uh, in Jamaica many years ago by Dennis O'Brien. He gradually grew the organisation going from one Caribbean market to another. Uh, building up, it must be said, substantial debts, but bringing the company to a point this summer where he felt it was ready for a stock market launch on the New York Exchange, the Mm -hmm. most prestigious in the world. Mm -hmm. But that didn't actually happen. What did happen? Well, what happened was he uh, he pulled it at the 11th hour. Um, It was due to float on or around the 9th of October. Um, And on the 7th, uh, Dennis O'Brien and Digicel were were due to um, to state the price at which they were going to sell it per share. Now, um, they were looking at between uh, $13 and $16 a share. That would have raised net about $1.7, billion, depending on where upon that range you take it. Um, but they couldn't get the price. They couldn't get investors, institutions, um, hedge funds, um, um, and private investors, retail investors. They couldn't get anybody to pay what they wanted to pay. Um, so what Dennis O'Brien and, Digis- and the Digicel board chose to do um, um, was rather than sell it at a price um, um, less than they thought it was worth, or rather um, sell a bigger stake than, 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 than he wanted to sell in order to raise what he wanted to need to raise, he yanked a flotation. Um, he said uh, he used an analogy that, you know, if you know your front garden is worth um, far more than people are prepared to pay for it, why would you let your front garden go for a price that you think is, uh, is, is lower than it's really worth? To which the counter-argument would be that that's the price that the market is willing to pay right now. That is the price that the market is willing to pay. I suppose, the, you know, the, the, the question comes around as to what really he does now. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, the company needs capital. It clearly needs capital. Um, and, and it can't get any more debt. It's got $6.5 billion worth of debts. Um, and it needs money to expand and to, and to deal with its competitors in the region. So it needs equity. Um, um, and that equity, if it's not going to come from the stock market, it has to come from somewhere else. Um, look, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that, that are surprised that Dennis O'Brien didn't just float the company anyway, even if it was at a lower price, even if it was giving up a bigger stake than he had been prepared or he had wanted to give up, because at least then it would give it access to the capital that it needs to cope with what are now very, very real and and and, and uh, imposing challenges facing Digicel over the next number of years. So all of this is going on in the backdrop this autumn, in the run-up to the uh, the fateful meeting in, in Singapore in which yes. the, fa- the famous affidavit is signed. What, in your assessment, Peter, are they, the, where, where do we have a dovetailing, if you like, of the, the Digicel story, what's going on, and then the, the action in the court uh, as before our eyes in recent days? Well, I mean, paragraph 16 of the affidavit says, uh, he's talking about the memory stick, and he says, I was shocked. Uh, what this was on the stick was simply extraordinary. And he, he says a couple of things. And then he says, in addition to this, it was, quote, calculated to cause damage to my business at a time when I was conducting an IPO, unquote. So he is linking. He is linking uh, the difficulties 
or, or we'll just say the, the, be neutral about it, the IPO. He is linking the IPO process with this alleged conspiracy. So he's, he's putting them together. He, he is in his affidavit, and yet yeah. we know that what's on the memory stick is, uh, you know, in, in large part, newspaper cuttings. It, in large part, uh, I, I should say that there is uh, the IPO prospectus is on the memory stick as well. So the memory stick does mention the IPO, but I mean, the prospectus is a public document as far as I'm aware. Well, I, su- I suppose a lot of it falls down. I mean, clearly, if you look at some of the um, uh, the, the, the names of some of the files uh, in, in the affidavit, it you, you could surmise that perhaps it's aimed at people who don't know Dennis O'Brien that well or people yeah. people based outside of the country, perhaps people who work in, 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 in financial institutions abroad. Um, but then you wonder to yourself, well, you know, I mean, did I really make, you know, multi-million dollar investment decisions based upon dossiers of newspaper cuttings and so on? I don't think so. Um, and perhaps they do. But but there, there was a lot of IPOs pulled or, or, or at least went for values below the value that was sought by their original owners in the period in which Dennis O'Brien pulled his initial public offering. In the week before he pulled his uh, IPO, um, five IPOs did get away in New York, but all for values much, much, much less, up to 50% less than what the sellers had been seeking. Um, So the climate was bad at the time for IPOs, there is no doubt. But Dennis O'Brien was asking for a lot. There's also no doubt of that as well. He wanted a very high price. Um, um, and, you know, it, 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 as you say, it's very interesting that, he's, that he puts the IPO in, in the same context mm-hmm. as, uh, as, as, as the release of this I dossier. Mean, w- one, of, one of my sources in the story described the dossier on the memory stick as, as a Fisher-Price guide to Dennis O'Brien for those people who don't know Dennis O'Brien. And, you know, looking, looking down the, 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 uh, the index of the files, I mean, we have uh, Tribunal uh, files, uh, Financial Times, uh, Independent, Irish Daily Mail, Daily Mail, the whole page of Daily Mail, Irish Sun, Irish Times, uh, Mail on Sunday, Moriarty Tribunal. It's, you know, it's, it's stuff that's it's just out there. As far well, as I can see. Well, I would have thought that you could uh, you could go to a very well accomplished uh, searcher in the name of Google yes. and get most of it yourself. I think you, I think you probably would. I think you probably would. What you wouldn't get is, of course, the, the 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 assessment material, the sort of who is Dennis O'Brien, the Moriarty Tribunal experience, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, which I I assume are ninety five percent quoting. Uh, the tribunal itself, but infusing it with a certain amount of comment and, and analysis and assessment. And it, it is maybe that's what he's objecting to. We just don't know as yet. There's one individual who hasn't surfaced yet in, a, in our conversation, and that's a, a, a guy in the name of uh, Mark Hollingsworth, who is a freelance journalist based in Britain. Yes, he is. Um, uh, Mark Hollingsworth is somebody who appeared on the scene in the wake if you like, of the uh, RTE stroke doll privilege uh, uh, controversy story. Uh, Call it an affair. <laughs> an affair. Uh, uh, last May, June, he, he, he appears in July uh, sending emails to people saying um, he's working for the Sunday Times or he works for the Sunday Times or he's researching a story on Dennis O'Brien for the Sunday Times magazine. And could I come uh, and talk to you about this? And 
you know, all of us who are journalists do that all the time. And uh, he spoke to David Murphy. He spoke to uh, Lucinda Crichton. He spoke to a number of other journalists. And he spoke to uh, Anne-Marie McNally, who is uh, 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 Catherine Murphy's um, communications manager. And there were a certain amount of email exchanges. And, and I've seen copies of these. And it's quite clear the man is putting himself forward as somebody who's working for the Sunday Times, albeit on a freelance basis. And, and, he, and he then comes to Dublin in well, September. He, Yes, everything goes quiet for August, I assume, because it's holidays for most people in most places. And he pops up in September, I think around September the 6th or 7th. It's in my report there. And uh, he meets a number of people. And at this stage, a number of people are getting a little bit sort of anxious. Um, One of the first things he did ask David Murphy when he spoke to him, David spoke to him, I think, for about a half an hour back in uh, July, I think, was there was there was a a perhaps uneasy interest in sources. He wanted to know David Murphy's sources for his IBRC story. And he this came up again and again when he spoke to people on the phone and particularly when he came in September. He wanted to know people's sources for information uh, that was uh, upsetting Dennis O'Brien, if you like. Um, and that unnerved a number of people and they didn't, uh, some of them uh, broke off uh, communication with him. However, I suppose from Mark Hollingsworth's point of view, his trip to Dublin was successful because he managed to acquire um, the files, the same files that are on the memory stick. So they were sent to him uh, by red flag, uh, presumably because they thought this was just briefing material, cuttings, etc., etc., uh, via Dropbox. And all that one can say at this point is the same information is on the memory stick which arrived at Dennis O'Brien's uh, offices, I believe, in Grand Canal. Very, very interesting. It's, it's fair to say at this point that the Sunday Times have said that he wasn't actually... Absolutely. They there. have, they have, uh, they have uh, uh, run a mile from this, uh, saying uh, they did not commission him. Uh, and uh, the Sunday Times um, uh, Dublin office in particular say he's nothing to do with us at all. If this was anything to do with anything, it's from the UK. It's nothing to do with us. You, you've been a, a journalist uh, for many, many years, Peter, on, on, both, <laughs> on both sides of the IRC. But uh, you, you would have had dealings over the years with, with freelance journalists. It is sometimes the case that a freelance journalist would get an idea. OK, Absolutely. listen, I go to pursue a particular yes, story. Sure. I'm going for it. I have a track sure. record. And when I land this story, if I land it, yeah. I'm going to give it to the Sunday sure, Times sure. or whomever. Sure, that, that, that is absolutely true. And I, I mean, I would have done it my, myself at, at times. Uh, you, you go to somebody and say, listen, I, I'm thinking of writing a story, you know, maybe for the magazine, maybe for the business section, maybe for the newspaper. I'm not sure yet, you know, because you don't know. You don't know the full dimensions of the story. So I don't regard that as particularly un, un, unusual, I must say. Very good. Mark Paul, what next for Digicel? The company's been in the news again in recent days because its main rival in the, rival in the Caribbean, Cable & Wireless, is about to undergo a change in ownership. Cable and Wireless is in talks, um, now that these talks haven't reached a conclusion, but it, it is in talks to be taken over um, by Liberty Global, which is a company that is controlled by John Malone. He's the biggest landowner in the US, he's um, one of the wealthiest men in the world, and he is Mr. Cable. He is the king of cable television. And he's a lot of Irish assets too. He does have a lot of Irish assets. He owns the, the, the Trinity Capital Hotel um, um, across the road from the Irish Times, around the corner from the Irish Times on Pier Street. Um, he owns a number of, uh, of Irish... 
um, estates. I believe he also bought Sir Anthony O'Reilly's um, um, stud in Kildare. Um, um, so he's um, he's a man who's familiar with Irish assets. He's he's familiar with Irish companies, but um, um, now he's also going to become, if he takes over Kevin Wireless, much more familiar with Dennis O'Brien because and he has he, money he, to spend. Clearly, he has money to spend. Um, um, and uh, Liberty Global has indicated that it sees the Caribbean and Latin America. Um, as a region where where it really could mop up a lot of assets and and and, and consolidate, as they say, pull them all together um, um, and and derive more value from them. There's another gentleman by the name of Carlos Slim who who vies with um, Bill Gates for the title of world's richest man, and that's Dennis O'Brien's other rival. Um, and and uh, what what John Malone really wants to do in entering that region is to take on Carlos Slim in that general region. Um, um, and, and Carlos Slim is Mexican. Carlos Slim is Mexican. Now th- there, there there's only one country I believe where Carlos Slim, Dennis O'Brien, and John Malone, um, um, well, sorry, Capital Wireless, it's not John Malone yet, where they overlap, and that's Panama. And Dennis O'Brien is a distant third in Panama. Um, 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 Digicel is, 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 is way behind in Panama. So if it were to happen, if, and it's a big if, if it were to happen that, that Cable and Wireless under the control of, of John Malone and, and Carlos Slim's uh, America Mobile were to go at each other in the region, it would make life difficult for, 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 for Dennis O'Brien right at the time when he needs to generate more revenues. He needs to pick up more customers. He's trying to pivot the company from a mobile operator to a cable television and and, and, and fixed line broadband operator, uh, it's not good timing for him. It's not good timing for him at all. Um, um, but you know, look, it's, uh, it's 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 another challenge that he's going to have to face down. Uh, you know, when when he built Digicel up, it really took on cable and wireless kind of you know 13, 14 years ago at a time when cable and wireless was basically fast asleep. Um, and sleep and, at the switches, they would say. Yeah, and it tore and, and Digicel tore across the Caribbean, pulled the rug from underneath cable and wireless. Um, but it's a different prospect now. And if John Malone gets his hands on it uh, and gets full control of it, it'll become uh, an, an even more difficult uh, competitor for for for, for Digicel to supplant. In a, in a in an environment where he has had to uh, essentially pull the IPO. He has, which was to take him to the next level. He has, and 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 the problem with a with a change of ownership for cable and wireless is that Digicel will be able to do. Uh, it'll make it more difficult in the markets that it's already in, and Carlos Slim is standing in the way of the markets that he really wants to enter geographically. So Carlos Carlos Slim would provide a geographical block for Digicel. John Malone would provide uh, provide a competitive block in the markets it's already in. Um, it's not going to be it's not going to be easy for Digicel. Um, um, but you know, look, it's uh, it's uh, the competition is out there to be won. Meanwhile, back in the forecourts, the case continues, Peter. Where does it go next? Um, well, they're still uh, arguing over access to information inside uh, Red Flag. I, I gather that there is some suggestion now that they want access to all the record of all Google searches, which is the mind boggles uh, in any in any sort of uh, media-style office. The number of people who would search Mr. Google uh, every day, uh, the number of searches would be in millions. So, uh, look, we'll see, we'll see where it goes. December the 8th has been set as the substantive hearing, uh, if you like, um, uh, on, the, on, the, on the allegation. Whether that happens uh, remains to be seen, but as we know, uh, if, if, if Mr. O'Brien's uh, case misses that date, he has many other cases to keep him occupied before the courts. And plenty going on in Digicel. Indeed. Peter Murta, thank you very much, and Mark Paul, thank you very much. Thank you. At Irish Life, we can tell you that 49% of employees in Ireland don't think about tomorrow. They don't have a pension plan. We can help you help them. 
Because if you're involved in running your company's pension plan, we can administer it for you. With our member-specific investment solutions, online access for employers, trustees and members, and always-on smartphone apps. Just call one of our corporate team on 01704-1845. Visit irishlifecorporatebusiness.ie or contact your pension consultant to find out how we can help your company think of tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information source for Irish Life September 2014. Well, far from that action in the High Court, there's new data out this week on Ireland's housing market and the retail trade. To discuss the figures, I'm joined by Owen Burke-Kennedy of the Irish Times business staff. Owen, what is in this data and what does it actually tell us? Yes, well, I suppose property's never too far from the headlines in Ireland, but the latest uh, batch of data from the CSO uh, indicates prices nationally rose by 1.3% in September and were up 8.9% on an annual basis. Now, in Dublin, I suppose, where the pressure is uh, pressure on supply is most acute, prices were up 0.9% uh, on a monthly basis and 6.5% on an annual basis. Now, it's worth noting that this was the slowest rate of annual increase in two years since um, June 2013. So annual growth uh, rate in property prices appears to be slowing and has been for six successive months. It's worth noting back in April, um, property price inflation in Dublin was in excess of 20%. So it really has come down from, from a high. And what was the explanation for that, Owen? Well, of course, the first point of call would be the central bank's new lending restrictions. Are they having an effect? I think most experts believe they are having an effect. The Central Bank's Deputy Governor, uh, Stefan Garlock, said recently that it was still too early to say what the overall effect of the new rules had been. However, he did note there was some evidence that they had dampened speculative buying in the market. Now, I think he was being modest. I think most commentators believe they really are having an effect. So what we're seeing now is a consistent low-level growth. Now, that's what economists would consider a healthy market. You want an annual property price inflation between 5 and 10%. Uh, experts think we're going to come in somewhere in that zone this year for 2015. This type of growth, in theory, shields first-time buyers and people hoping to trade up from the kind of wild fluctuations of the past. And as I said, 20% inflation back in April, hardly uh, sustainable. Um, of course, all this would be good if it wasn't still so dysfunctional and steeped in market failure on the supply side. And there's nothing going on at the level of supply, or at least a very only a very low level of new housing supply coming into the market. Recent figure shows uh, that we have uh, house building numbers in Dublin for the first nine months of this year at around two thousand. Now uh, the government so you'd hardly you, you, you'd, you'd hardly provide housing for for the amount of graduates coming out of universities. Never mind people leaving school. At that Indeed, yeah. The government's housing agency suggests the country needs around twenty thousand new homes built every year, including eight thousand in Dublin. So we're, we're we're miles off that miles off that mark. Um, and just to give you a kind of a uh, kind of comparator metric. And, I, and this is pointless, but in 2006, at the height of the construction boom, 66,000 homes were being built in the first nine months of the year, 14,000 in Dublin. So you can see just the uh, stellar fall-off since the crash. 
What do the figures tell us about, I mean, we know about the situation in the Dublin market. We know about the advance of prices. I mean, those figures, 20% increase in the year to April. What about the situation outside of Dublin? Because the complaint was always made that uh, the rest of the country was lagging and that while Dublin was in recovery, the rest of Ireland was far behind. Well, lo and behold, that complaint can no longer be made. Prices actually outside Dublin, excluding Dublin, are riding, rising at a faster pace than into capital and have been so for three months. Now, uh, the metrics are 1.6, I think, the uh, monthly rise in September was for properties outside of Dublin. And that equates to an 11.4% annual rate of inflation. That, that, which is quite healthy after you know, so, so, such a long and prolonged... Well, I mean, uh, you might think that unhealthy if you're a first-time <laughs> first buyer, but yes, it, it, it's well, definitely... Well, given, given where prices are coming from, given the collapse yeah. in prices. And I think that's, that, that's where the explanation comes from. I don't think there's too much significance in these things. Dublin typically always picks up first in a recovery. It's it's fueled by FDI in the IT sector. So we're always going to see the Dublin property market recover quicker. Um, so the rest of the country is kind of lagging behind Dublin. So I, I think people sometimes make too much of that uh, phenomenon. But uh, there you have it. What about the retail sales figures, Owen? Yeah, well, the retail sales figures released this morning, I suppose, probably offer uh, the best barometer on on how households are faring. The first thing to say is that they're, on a monthly basis, extremely erratic, and that's largely down to car sales. So in July, we had a a massive bump in car sales, largely down to the new 152 uh, plates. That's right, and the the explanation for that essentially is that the new system was designed to put a little bit of demand into the market at the midpoint in the year, in a market which for years... Uh, was held back by the fact that people typically bought cars at the start of the year and the longer the year went on, the less cars were sold. Exactly. So we have a bump in sales in July, a fall off in sales in August and a kind of modest kind of pickup in September. As a result, headline volume numbers for retail sales as a whole are 0.3% up on the month and 8.6% higher in volume terms over the year. Now that was a slight disappointment, um, you know, and you could say that's because of the car sales. Um, it's slight disappointment, but but core sales probably are the best uh, metric to look at, and they strip out car sales, and they are over the nine month period uh, between January and September, six point two percent higher than last year. So, what we're seeing, I suppose, is an erratic month to month figures, but the underlying trend is positive, and that's year what most that's what most experts are kind of looking. And wh- which are the hot sectors right now? Well. Uh, you know, car sales have obviously done very well. The car sales really, um, you know, are up around 100,000 for the year so far, which we haven't seen that level of sales since about 2008. So that's really uh, a massive sector in recovery. Um, furniture and lighting uh, up uh, over a 10-month period, but down on a monthly basis. Uh, fuel up, um, but obviously that's related to international commodity prices, oil prices. Uh, food and beverage down on a monthly basis, bars down on a monthly basis. But again, these metrics were kind of up on a 10-month period in value terms. So um, kind of mixed bag. But when you're talking about furniture and car sales, that would seem to me to be token a a certain level of confidence at the level of the consumer. These are big ticket items. To buy a new car is a It's a pretty big investment. It's not something people do all the time. Likewise, with furniture, it's not an absolute necessity to kit out the house again. 
Yeah, absolutely, no doubt. And uh, these figures are coming against a backdrop of consumer confidence being at a nine-year high, uh, as you say, reflecting stronger spending. Um, and, of course, people's disposable income are being boosted by tax cuts. Uh, well, tax promised, cuts which, which take effect in January. Which take effect in January, and we've had some this year as well. So, yeah, I mean... It's worth noting that, you know, for all the talk about pharma and IT, those sectors have quite a small employment footprint. Uh, retail sector is huge. It employs about 200,000 people in Ireland, and it's been in the doldrums for quite a long time. So it is picking up, but it's slow and it's erratic, and it's, you know, it's, it's probably going to be the last sector of the government's jigsaw to fall into place. But it, we could also say that, I mean, we, we are now in an economy in which 130,000 people more are at work then at the very uh, bottom of the cycle. And that you'd have to think that with so many people now back in the workforce earning wages, that uh, there's going to be uh, rather a lot more money in circulation in the economy and rather a lot more money going into the retail sector. I think absolutely. And I think those numbers are reflected in the government's exchequer figures on their tax returns, and they'll be reflected in retail sales. In value terms, 10 of the 13 sectors uh, assessed by the uh, CSO recorded annual growth. So I think that's that's kind of what the experts are homing in on. We're seeing a kind of underlying pattern of steady, not massive, but steady growth. Um, one or two of the sectors are obviously, uh, like fuel, are, are you know predicated on international commodity prices. But essentially, we are seeing a pickup um, you know, in retail sales overall. Omber Kennedy, thank you very much. That's it for the Irish Times Business Podcast. I'm Arthur Beasley. Tune in again. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.